0: is on the way just like Elijah prophesied the rain can come and they asked what do you see they said just a small hand and he said that's enough the rain is coming father I thank you today for small beginnings of revival I thank you today for what you're even doing in this church and in our lives May we continue to be a part of the revival. May we continue to walk where you walk. Talk the way you talk. Do what you do. In the name of Jesus, we pray, Father. And everybody said, amen. Would you bless us today? Praise God. You may be seated. Victory belongs to the church. We're celebrating all that God is doing in this nation because we believe that the best days are yet to come. Man of God, would you grab that table for me? Somebody help me. Thank you. Man, this man of God is there. Come on. How many believe that the greatest days for America are ahead? Amen. And if we're wrong, I'll see you in heaven in blazing fire, right? I mean, we're going to get taken up. The fire is coming down. But I still believe the greatest days are ahead. That's what I'm believing for. I believe God told us to live with that hope that we would see things change, that we would see the anointing break the yoke, and that before we would go, we would see what the early church saw. We would see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Open up with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, but how many already knew that abortion was wrong before the Supreme Court said it, right? Like how many already knew that? And how many know we don't have to wait for the state of Illinois to make their decision. We're right now not going to have abortions, amen? And so if, if we win Illinois for the Lord, then there'll be no abortions whether or not they legalize it or keep it legal or not, because the people will say, we don't want it, amen? John chapter 6, the bread of life. Somebody say the bread of life. Thank you. Last week I got a little bit into the depth of the false teachings of Roman Catholicism and Calvinism in this passage. Today I believe I can go through it a little bit more swiftly if you can keep up and get to the bread of life and what Christ does for us. Can I get an amen if you believe I can do it? Okay. If I don't see you tracking or I don't hear the amens or I I see your eyes wandering, then I'm going to be taking my time. And that's okay because I try to communicate with you, not just simply, you know, present, you know, give you a presentation. This is not just a presentation. This is communication. Amen? Amen. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to read all the way through, and we're going to stop along the way, and hopefully we'll get through all of these verses all the way to verse 71. I'm going to believe God. We can read verses 25 to 71, okay? So I, I got high hopes. I got high hopes today. When they found him, talking about Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he got there the last night, from walking on the water. That's how he got there. Just in case you don't remember, you can read that in verses above. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he rebukes them and says, You really don't want signs. You really just want to eat and satisfy your flesh. Do not work for food that spoils. Somebody say, Do not work for food that spoils. Thank you. That concept is going to come up in just a little bit. So he says, don't work. Don't put your effort in trying to get more loaves and more fishes because that food can spoil. If you remember, that's why I talked about why I don't think there was baskets left over of fish because what happens to fish? It spoils a lot faster than bread. So there was leftover bread but not leftover fish because God knows how to set up our doggy bags on the way home. He doesn't want it to stank and, and cause a mess. He doesn't want people to get sick. So here he tells them. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to what? Eternal life, thank you, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus is the real deal. He has the seal, amen? Now look at verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do To do the works God requires, so now they check in to the word work because Jesus said, "Don't work for the food that spoils. Don't put in your effort to get more fish and loaves. Put your effort towards getting eternal life, towards getting the spiritual food that will never fail you, that will never spoil." Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Highlight his words, please, starting with the work of God. This is what he replied and said, "The." Work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Everybody say 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 with me, to believe. Say it again, to believe. So the works of God are not keeping the commands of God. Sometimes people think that is what he meant when he spoke to the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commands. They think that answer, keep the commands, was Jesus' final answer. No, that answer to the man... Coming to Jesus, the rich man, and Jesus saying keep the commands was to break him down to the point where he would realize he had not been a good person. He had not been keeping the commands. And if you would have stuck around, what would he have realized? What is impossible with man is possible with God. And how do you get the possibilities of God? You must believe. So don't get it twisted. Sometimes people will say, when Jesus spoke to that man, he said, keep the commands. That's how we're saved, by keeping the commands. We're commandment keepers. That's why we keep the Sabbath. And they'll they'll twist the scriptures on Jesus. They'll make him contradict himself. Because clearly in John, he does not tell them to keep the commands. In John, he says to believe. Somebody say, believe. Thank you. Now, why would he tell the rich man that? Because the rich man thought he could work his way to heaven by keeping the commands. And that's why he said, keep them. And then you'll get to heaven. In other words, be perfect. And the man basically said, well, I am perfect. I'm keeping the commands. I'm great. And then Jesus said back to him, well, then sell everything you have. What command was Jesus referring to there? To love your Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had put money before God. And he was showing them, you're not even keeping the first one, let alone all the others. And remember when the disciples saw all of that, they got discouraged. And they said, who can then be saved? And then he said, with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. So what was he teaching them? You have to believe first that Jesus is a Savior and that he saves you from your sins because no one is going to be able to take the ladder of success to heaven and say, I did it, I made it. No one is going to be saved by their works. One more time, say with me, to believe. Thank you. Let us always remember that salvation is by grace through faith. Because of Jesus Christ. Verse 30, so they hear about believing in him. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Now they had just totally overlooked the rebuke that he had given them earlier. The rebuke he had given them earlier was, you really don't want signs, you want your bellies full. But now they're like, oh no, we really want signs. And he's like, no you don't. This is not really what you want, but I'm going to show you a sign that you cannot deny. Look at what the sign is. He's going to show them he is the bread of life. Look at verse 31. They go, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's Exodus 6:4. Let's keep going. Verse 32, please. Jesus answered them and said, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Highlight true bread, please. Highlight it. The NIV messes you up here in a little bit and gives the Catholics an edge. And I don't like them even getting an edge. You need to remember this word. Everybody say true. That is the word that you need to remember. True bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they say, hey, we do want a sign, Jesus. We really, really, really do. And he's like, okay, well, let me give you a sign that's undeniable. You ate manna. Or your ancestors ate manna and they still died. If you eat the bread of life, you'll never die. This bread is the bread that has come down from heaven. This is the real bread. Who is he speaking about there? Who is Jesus speaking about? Himself. Now, you could say Jesus is talking about himself in the third person. Jesus is talking about Jesus. That's okay. He does that sometimes. But let's be specific to what I'm asking here. Jesus is talking about what? Himself. He is referring to himself. And what does he call himself? The true bread. Somebody say the true bread. Okay. Now, they then say, just like the woman at the well hearing about this water that leads to everlasting life, we heard about that in John chapter 4, they now say to Jesus, sir, always give us this bread. Now, what were they thinking the bread was going to be? Like manna, a physical bread, bread that they would put into their mouths. Now here we can do a little review about Roman Catholicism. Has communion been mentioned anywhere here? No, so for them to introduce communion into this context is going against the context. That's called eisegesis, entering into the context what you want to be there. Exegesis is exiting from the context what you want to be there. Those are two Greek words. One is eisegesis, one is exegesis. Here we see nothing to do with communion, but we see Jesus teaching his word on who he is. Somebody say his word. And from the very beginning, we've learned that Jesus is the word. So not only does he give words, he is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do you think John has forgotten about that in John chapter 6 as he is handpicking the stories he is telling? Absolutely not. Keep that in mind, that he is the true bread, that he is the word of God, and that people who get this word, who receive this word, will never hunger. They'll always be filled. Now they ask him, to give, him, give them that bread, thinking this is going to be another party. This is going to be the manifest. This is going to be eating a bunch of physical food. Look at what he says in verse 35 now. Then Jesus declared, I'm going to give you communion, and you all going to start eating communion? No, what does he say? I am the bread of life. At this point, as I mentioned last week, can any Roman Catholic literally take this as Jesus becoming a loaf of bread, some slices and wrapped up in the Wonder Bread, you know, plastic bag? Of course not. We're still looking at Jesus physically there. So whatever bread of life is, it's going to lend towards the metaphorical, the allegorical. This is Jesus giving an example. Just like when he says, I'm the door, right there in front of him. Does he turn into a wooden door with a handle? So why would they introduce communion here? They introduce communion here because of other gospels that talk about the Last Supper, which isn't it something, they go to John 6 to say that communion is the literal body and blood of Jesus, and yet John does not have communion anywhere in his book. They go to John 6 to try to say this is what's going on, but where do they have to make that connection? From the other gospels that where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood in the context of John, what is he talking about here? He is talking about himself being the bread of life, the word of God, who's going to feed and nourish their souls. Is he going to physically give them anything to eat in this passage? Yes or no? No. Those who have read ahead, there is going to be nothing physical to eat. No matter how the Roman Catholics twist it, by coming up with philosophical terms such as transubstantiation, that the transub, like a transgender, the transubstance of the bread changes, no matter what they come up with the phys- uh, to describe what is happening here, it is still a physical reality. When you take communion, are you taking it spiritually or physically? Does calories enter into your body? Yes, they do. When you take communion, it does. Just want to make sure. It might be small calories, but calories enter in. You're not eating air and you're not eating Casper the Ghost or a, 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 a body of Christ. So no matter what they say about communion, it is still a physical element. They try to say part of it's physical, part of it's spiritual. So if you look at it in a microscope, it's still really bread, really wine. But something has changed the substance of what it is. And this is where they get into I don't have time to get into this, to the, to the accidents, and to the it's, it's called an accident and then a substance. And you have to know philosophically Aristotelian logic, okay? And so accidents and substance, and they believe the substance changes, but the accident remains the same. And the accident is the physical components, and the substance is that which makes bread bread. It's not actually physical, it's the concept of bread being bread. You can look it up. I have some links there for you, and you can look at the difference between accidents and substances and Aristotelian logic. But this is nonsense. Somebody say nonsense. It's nonsense to the context. No one is thinking there's a difference between the accident and the substance of this bread that they're getting. Jesus is very clear. He's saying, I'm the bread of life, but you're not going to eat something physical right now. Does everybody get that? No matter if I've just confused you in the last few seconds, just track with me. He's saying he's the bread of life. But is he going to give them something physical, even communion right now? No, so the concept cannot relate in John 6. Maybe you can make arguments from the other gospels. And yes, it's good to harmonize the scripture. But here he will make a very specific point that what he is giving them will have nothing to do with a substance called food. Natural food will not be given to any of them there. And yet, just like the woman at the well, they are expected to participate. Did the woman drink from eternal life at the day she was at the well? Yes, she did when she received Christ. Okay, everybody track with me here. Did the woman at the well get saved? Did she take a drink from the well of eternal life? Okay, now we're on the same page, okay? This can be a part four, part five. I don't mean we're here. Just give me your normal... Honest answers. And nobody make fun of anybody if they're wrong, okay? And sometimes I listen to myself and I ask the wrong question the wrong way. You know, I mix up words. You guys are always so patient with me, so thank you. I listen to myself and I just, I say, oh, God, have mercy, Lord. Because, you know, sometimes we're speaking we say the wrong thing. But I want to make sure I'm asking this question correctly. Everybody hear me. When the woman was at the well, did she drink spiritual water? Yeah. She did. Jesus told her to. And she got saved, so we're supposed to walk away from that encounter going, she drank some spiritual water. She got the well of eternal life. She's no longer thirsty if she got saved. But did any physical water, any kind of physical water be given to her in the name of Jesus to represent that water? Not at all. There there was nothing that Jesus said, "When, when you take this water, this will give you my water. Sometimes Catholics try to say, you know, that's all Jesus is doing, even if you guys don't get the transubstantiation of the philosophy, is Jesus is just giving us physical points to where he makes spiritual realities. And in some ways, we may agree with that. But I want us to be very honest here. That's not happening here. Communion will happen later, and I'll show you how to understand communion, even in light of this, but he is not handing out bread here. He is not using a symbol here for what the reality is. He is doing none of that. There is no food anywhere. As a matter of fact, he told them not even to focus on that kind of food because all that kind of food spoils. Does the communion that's even blessed and transubstantiated in the Catholic Church, does it still spoil? Yes, it does. That's why the priests, according to their traditions, must either eat it and drink it or give it away because they think then the body of Christ is spoiling. This is ridiculous. But is there any bread or wine anywhere around them? No. Now that you got it the Polish way, I told you about two or three times, okay? The Italian way is just to keep saying it louder. Does everybody got it? Because, okay, that's where we need to be. So he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. That's the point. There's no bread on the table. There's no wine. You're now supposed to be looking at him going, okay, you're the bread of life. Just like when you looked at him before, he was a well of water. That's how you were supposed to see him, or a shepherd, or a door. That's how you're supposed to see him. Whoever comes to me, not to a table, not to an altar to be given bread and wine, anyone who comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. If you eat communion, are you still hungry? Come on. That's why you might have thought there was zero calories in there. There is some calories, but not very much. you got to eat a whole lot of communion. We'd have to get out all the crackers. you would to get out all the grape juice just for you to get a little bit of something, right? And even then, they had it at a meal, but still, you would be hungry afterwards. Even if you ate a great feast like Passover, you still would be hungry. What Jesus is saying is when you come to this bread of life, you are not hungry. Is he talking about physical hunger or spiritual hunger? It's spiritual. Does he literally have to say right now, what I'm talking about is spiritual? No, he doesn't have to because he just called himself the bread of life. If you don't take that spiritually, then you are literally thinking we're watching Sesame Street right now and and bread is in front of you and is talking to you. Jesus has not turned into a loaf of wonder bread this is where I want you as Bible students to know the context of scripture even though it may sound like I'm beating a dead horse into the ground I am because people continually believe this there's a billion Catholics who believe this well I should say much less than that because statistically speaking they just did a survey only about a third of Catholics even go along with the song and dance of transubstantiation so even they go yeah something about this doesn't sound right it's still normal bread I'm eating it how could I be eating Jesus even if you say if it's a you know it's a a spiritual substance but but it's in the physical substance, it's you know the accidents and the and the substance. It's it's confusing to people. It's not in the context, and at best, and I would say this to anyone who's naive or trying to think the best of people. At best, people just don't understand what Jesus is doing. Even if they're not being uh, you know purposely deceiving you or trying to believe uh, cannibalism, they're just not getting Jesus's point, and that's okay. Because sometimes we don't get Jesus' point. But if we go back to the scriptures, we can see his point. Jesus is the bread of life. Not part of Jesus, all of Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Now here's where Calvinism comes in. Catholicism uses this passage to teach about the bread and wine becoming the literal body and blood of Jesus. Now Calvinism uses this passage to teach that God from eternity past picks and chooses who will be saved and who will be lost because of this verse right here. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. They now take this scripture to mean, and Calvinists are much closer to Christ than Catholics. They are actually in the Christian faith. I believe most Catholics are outside of the Christian faith, though they can be saved as well. So Roman um, uh, Calvinists can be our brothers and sisters, and we share with them so many uh, things in unity. So they'll say, all the Father has given Jesus. In other words, we didn't choose Jesus The Father chose us to choose Jesus. Now, is that true? Just in that sentence, it is. The Father chooses all of us, but they would say the Father only chooses some of us. But would you still agree that it's the Father that chose you so that you could choose Jesus? In other words, you didn't choose Jesus all on your own. He had to choose you first. Do you guys agree with that? Does anybody believe you chose Jesus without the grace of the Father? No. You chose Jesus only after the Father did something in your heart. But where we disagree with them is that they believe this statement now nullifies those or or, or speaks against those who are going to hell. So why are people going to hell, according to a Calvinist? Because the Father has not given them to Jesus. The Father has overlooked them. They are doomed from the womb. So in the very beginning, the Father decides who will be saved and who will go to hell. Only the Father decides. Now, you see, with us, we believe that the Father decides who can come to Jesus, and we believe he loved, the, he loved the whole world. God so loved the what? The world, John 3, 16, not going to contradict John 6. So the Father says to the Son, I've given you the world. But now out of the world who comes? Those who choose. So do, do, does God do the choosing for us, or do we choose as well? Both. God chooses the whole world to have an opportunity to come to his Son. In other words, the Father makes all of us savable. The Father gives us all opportunity. Is that also found in the book of John? Yes. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. But also what about in John chapter 1? Listen to John chapter 1 in verse 4. In him, talking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light Put that up there, please, so they can see it. John 1, 4. Was the light of all mankind. How much of mankind gets the light of Jesus? All of it. But does that mean all are saved? No. In your natural life, you get a spiritual light, a soul, a conscience to be able to choose or reject Jesus. The Father gives us all the light of the conscience. You see here, it is clear. And then somebody says, "Well, what about the sinner? What about how much they sin? Listen to what it says in verse five. "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it." So yes, when we talk to new Agers and like, everybody's got light, man, there's a part of that. that's true. What is that light? Is that the light of salvation? No, it is the light of the conscience. How much of mankind has a conscience? All of mankind. How much of mankind has an inner light, a spark of divinity on the inside of them that lets them know themselves, to know thyself, and to know thy creator? How much of mankind has that light on the inside of them? All mankind. And if mankind sins and brings darkness, does it extinguish the light for them to know thyself and to know thy creator? No amount of sin. Only one brother's shaking his head no. Everybody say no. Trust me here. A sinner cannot extinguish the light of their soul even in eternity. The darkness they will be thrown into is a, is a realm, is a place they will be. But the light of mankind's soul, I believe, will be with them for all of eternity. And that will be part of the torment in hell is knowing themselves and knowing their creator and that they rejected it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. Now look at verse 9 in case you don't get it. The true light that gives light to some people... Just the one that the Father has chosen? No, the true light that gives light to how many? Everyone came into the world. So life equals light. If you are in a live human being, you have the light of your conscience. You will live forever. In one realm or the other, in light with God, or in darkness, in torment. But even in the realm of hell, in darkness and in torment, your soul will still have the light of conscience. This is what we believe the uh, gnashing of teeth, teeth and the worm dieth not refer to the great regret and the mental anguish of knowing who you are and your Creator and having rejected God. Now, going back to John chapter 6. When Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. How many do we believe the Father is drawing to the Son? The world or only part of the world? The whole world. But how many are actually given to Jesus to be saved? Only those who listen to the Father, who choose the Father, and obey the Father. In this context, who is Jesus literally talking to about coming to him? The Jewish people. They are now starting to realize there are some like Nicodemus who are getting in the program and then others like themselves who are not. And they're starting to wonder, why does Jesus have Jewish disciples that follow him and others want to kill him? Why is it some hate him and some love him? And what he's saying to them is, this idea of coming to me doesn't start with me. It's what you all have been doing with the Father even before I came. So in other words, if you were a good Jew before Jesus came, when Jesus came, you would accept him. If you were being a bad Jew, not listening to the Father before Jesus came, you would not accept Jesus. Does everybody get that? Half of you get it. Help us, Lord. Do we need the soft music and the piano playing? Lawrence, come up here and just tickle the keys a little bit. Make them, you all can't track with this, I can tell. I'm going to get Lawrence up here. He's going to play the keys. He's going to tickle them for you a little bit. The Calvinist is saying to you that only those the Father chooses will be saved. Does everybody get that's what the, father, uh, the Calvinist says about the Father? Okay. Now we agree to a point that all the Father chooses will be saved. But we don't agree with them that he's only choosing some. Okay? Play those nice soft tunes. Just give me a little bit of synth in the background. Just a little bit. Just a little soft. You used to go to a Calvinist church. Okay? You see what I'm trying to accomplish today? It's quite a bit, isn't it? Because most people in our congregation, if they were sitting in that church, they wouldn't have any idea what was being said because it would be subtle. It would be agreeable in so many ways. More synth, thank you. It would be agreeable. And then if they got into a debate, sadly, though our church is very equipped to preach the gospel, many of them wouldn't be ready for a well-equipped Calvinist. Because a well-equipped Calvinist has an advantage. They know what we believe as well as what they believe. And most in our congregation, they don't understand what they believe. And so I'm trying to teach them what they believe, but it's hard for them to grasp what the Calvinist believes and what the context is teaching. Thank you, good brother. What I'm doing, what I'm employing in this service is what Paul did in his letters. If you read Paul like in Romans, he says, should we go on sinning? God forbid. And then he starts to preach. Then he says later on, are we like them, false apostles, masquerading, trying to get your money? No, we're not. So he's using arguments, questions. I want you just to see these, this way of teaching a little bit as we bring the soft music on here to help you. Don't you wish your um, calculus teacher would do this during calculus? Go to Romans. Let me show you some um, what we'd call rhetorical questions, but questions that he's asking his audience so you can see what I'm doing with you. Excuse me. We call this an interlocutor. He has an interlocutor in mind in the book of Romans, and he's arguing with them though they're not there in person. So go to Romans chapter 2. Just so you can see this. Verse 1. Look me. Let me help you to, to, to grow into this. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Okay? Now do you see like he's rebuking them? He's like, but keep going down. Verse, verse uh, 3 here. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? So you notice how he's asking them a question. Verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Do you see how he's stirring them up? Okay. Now go to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Notice how he's going to keep asking them these kinds of questions. It starts right around there. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Romans. What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Why is he asking them that? Because he just told them that circumcision doesn't really matter when it comes to salvation. But then he says, is there an advantage? And then he's gonna go, much in every way. Yeah, there's an advantage of being a Jew, but it can't really help you when it comes to salvation without knowing Christ. And look at verse three. What if some were unfaithful? See, what if some were unfaithful? You see how he's bringing up these questions. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He's asking questions. Go down to verse 9 now. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Well, hold on. Look at chapter 3, verse 9, please. It says here in chapter 3, verse 9, that there's no advantage. I know it's hard for our brothers to keep up, but it's important that you do, so help them in the back there, Andrew. Look at verse 9. Is there any advantage... Not at all. But go back to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Is there any advantage? Much in every way. Does everybody see that? But if you're not paying attention, if you're sleeping on Paul, you're not not getting him. There's advantage in this way. Much in every way. But in verse 9, no advantage at all. Look at verse 9. We'll just start right here. What advantage is there in being a Jew? What is there of value in circumcision? Much in every way. Now go to verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Is this where you have to pay attention? This is where you have to pay attention. And I wanted to show you just a few more times. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this manner? What shall we say about this? And he goes on to continue to talk look at verse 9 of chapter four is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised you notice the questions now go to chapter six verse one chapter 6 verse one what shall we say then shall we go on sending that grace may increase by no means Does everybody see the technique here that Paul implores go to chapter 6 verse 15 what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Does everybody see? Very important. I could go chapter by chapter. Look, chapter 7 has questions. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8. Oh, now uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts off with that beautiful statement. There's now no condemnation. But these are these questions that he gives, and I believe he takes them back up here into chapters nine and ten. Look at verse. Look at chapter eleven now. Chapter eleven, verse one. I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means. Look at chapter eleven, verse eleven again. I ask. See why is Paul asking all of these questions to teach you? And if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss his thought. Who is he debating with? He's debating with the person that he believes is asking those questions. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond the recovery? Not at all. Okay. Now let's go back to John 6. Thank you, my brother. That was a great interlude. Just stay right up here in case I need you again. Okay. okay, Amen. Let's praise the Lord for that. You guys ready? Now I'm going to start asking you questions. Does the Father give all people to Jesus? Let me ask it this way Does the Father desire all people to come to Jesus? Yes, but do all people come? No. Okay, there you go. Now, what is the difference between those the Father desires to come and those who actually come? The will of the person. All of us have the light of mankind. All of us have a conscience. All of us are in the world. That means the Father is wanting all of us to come to Jesus. But does everybody come to Jesus? No, not everyone comes to Jesus. Let me show more now in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 sets us up for John chapter 6. John has not forgot what he wrote here. Not only does he teach that all people have the light, but look at how he talks about who comes to Jesus. Look at John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. These are the Jews, those he's dealing with, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all those who did receive him, to those who what? Believe, thank you, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now going back to John 6, is the Father drawing everyone? Yes, but is everyone coming? No, only those who receive him are coming, but the Father must be involved. So we agree with the Calvinist to a point that the Father is the first to choose, the first to make an action. It is him that decides, but how many is he deciding for? All, oh, for everyone. Let me just show you a few more. We know John three sixteen, God so loved the world, but now let me give you a few more. Go to first uh, Timothy chapter 2, so you can see some of these Uh, statements that cover all of humanity. So you would know that, of course, the Father is drawing not just a a person he wants to save, but even sinners who will reject him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, talking about prayer. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants how many people to be saved? All people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the what? Of the truth. Now go to 1 Peter. Go to First Peter, and we're going to learn about why the end times is dragging on. How many know we've been in the end times for quite some time? Amen. And what does the Bible say? That we should not count his slackness as him being slow to keep his promise, but that he wishes that none would perish, but all would come to eternal life. What is that passage if someone finds it in First Peter? Oh, it's, thank you, my brother. It is is Second Peter, not First Peter. Good to have some scholars in the house. Here we go, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting how many to perish? Anyone to perish, but how many? Everyone to come to repentance. Now, going back to our notes, please. When we hear the Calvinist's Load into this statement things that are not biblical. We have to stop them. Has Jesus told us in this passage that it's the Father and the Father alone? Absolutely not. What it has, what the, what Jesus has told us is what the Father does. If I told you, hey, I'm building a house right now, I'm renovating. Do you automatically think Joe is doing it by himself? How many know there could be others in that process? Now at that point they'll say. The Calvinist will say, well, you take credit for your salvation. No, because faith is a gift, and I must participate in that gift. You can choose to accept it or receive it. I am not saving myself, but I am choosing whether or not I want to be saved. So is the Father drawing all to salvation? Yes, but are all being saved? No, because not all believe. Can they then say that those of us who believe could take credit for salvation? Absolutely not, and I say this for those who may be deeper in the conversation, Go to Romans chapter 4. Faith is clearly not a work. Faith is considered an opposite, of um, an an anti to a work. It is the opposite. Go to Romans chapter 4. When we say we have chose Christ or we have made a decision for Christ or we placed our faith in Christ, this does not count as a work according to the Bible. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and onward. What shall we say then with Abraham, our forefather, forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this manner? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by what? By works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham what? Believed God, and it was credited to him as what? As righteousness. So does believing God count as a work? No. That's the answer. Come on, let's take our time. Does believing God count as a work? No, but is this something you do? Yes, but it's not a work according to the Bible. So if they then want to say back to us, well, you say you believed, that's a work. So what's different? They'll say it to you like this. What's different between you and your neighbor going to hell? And you'll say, I believed. So then they'll say on judgment day, you can say I did one work better than my neighbor who went to hell. And you take them to Romans chapter 4 and you show them believing is not a work. Why is believing not a work? It's a gift of God. Hold your place in Romans. We'll come right back to this. I sense a part three, at least coming, if not a four, a five, and all these others, okay? Okay? Go to Ephesians chapter three. Go to Ephesians chapter three. Oh, rather, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse six. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his what? Of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by what? Grace. By grace you have been saved. Through what? Grace. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Any good Calvinist will tell you faith is included in the salvation. It is a gift of God. What? The salvation we receive through faith. So is faith a work according to the Bible? No, it is a what? A gift. Now, will you make a choice to receive or reject the gift? Absolutely. You'll make that choice, but your choosing is not a work. Going back to Romans, going back now to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts. You want another word for faith? Trust. But trust in God who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Now go to verse 9. Was eventually uh, Abraham obedient to keep commands? Absolutely. Did Abraham keep the commands of God? Yes, yes but what came first, his faith or command keeping? faith. Look at verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? That was a command he had to keep. Or for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Look at verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? You got questions on questions. Are you paying attention today? Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Before. Answer Paul's question, class. When was Abraham counted as righteous? Before. It was not after, but before. Going back to our notes now. Everybody getting something good out of today's message? We'll get to the maybe the shouting part, the bread of life, Mm-mm-mm, bread of life. Mm-mm, put some butter on it, bread of life. You know, we'll get to that in just a little bit, but you got to work your word, okay? All those the Father gives me will come to me. Does that say what the Calvinist says? No, it doesn't. It can say a other, one other things. You can be an Arminian. You can be a Molinist. You can be a lot of other things, but this certainly is not Calvinism. All this says is that the Father is giving people to Jesus. It doesn't say how the Father chooses to give people to Jesus. I needed an amen there. That's, there's a whole article written i Just click on that article for them, the, the, all of those. This is just so they can see it. Just click on it. There's an entire article that I literally just went through with you guys here on my own. Cl- click on it, please. And it should open up. If the internet is working and everything is the way it's supposed to be in this world. For whatever reason. Yeah, hit a new link there. Go and read this article if you need more help. All that we have... Thank you. All that we have learned is that the Father gives people to Jesus. Did we learn how the Father gives people to Jesus? No. We just, we're just told the Father gives people to Jesus. Now go back to the notes, please. We've always believed, Calvinist, non-Calvinists, non-Cal- every Christian has always believed that the Father gives people to Jesus. How did I explain to you the Father Gives people to Jesus by faith. He gives us all the gift of faith. Remember that light of mankind scripture? Would you come back up here, please? Amen. Amen. Come back up. Before we get back into the notes, we're going to go to John chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1, class. I want everybody to check in here. Help us, Lord. How many know I care about you? I love you. I'm not upset. That's why I'm putting on the soft music because It helps. Come on, class. When we see in John chapter 1, verse 4, and it says, In him was life, and that was the life of all mankind. How much, before I even give you my interpretation of light, I don't even want to confuse you here what I think light is, okay? Let's just start with what it's saying as clear as we can understand. In the beginning, did Adam and Eve have life? Yes, they had life, right? And that life is now passed along to us biologically. Let's just start there, biologically, right? And a biological human is different than a biological dog, an animal, right? Now, that difference between the life that you experience and your pets experience, I believe John is calling light light. Okay? I don't believe Sparky, my dog had the light of Christ like my child has the light that God gives humanity. Everybody here with me? This is what John chapter 1 early on is teaching us. In John chapter 6, there is not going to be a contradiction of that. You need to remember this when you get there. So in Jesus, the word is life. Think Adam and Eve here, because it's in the beginning, in RK. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Can I get an amen? So when Adam and Eve came alive, they had light in their soul, light in their eyes, a countenance, a consciousness, a understanding of themselves and of their creator. That's the best way that I explain consciousness, to know thyself and know thy creator, okay? The light shines in the darkness. How long has there been darkness since they sinned? And we're even born into that darkness now as sinners, are we not? We're born into that darkness, Amen. But the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So it doesn't matter what sinner you see in this world, you're still speaking to a light bearer, a person of light. A spark of the divinity of the image of God is there. That's why I was saying the new age will take you there in a weird way. But we can agree up to a point that, that we all have a spark of, div- of the divine that we all have a light on the inside of. It's just another way of saying we're all made in God's image. That's that's all it's saying. So don't freak out and go beyond that. We're not saying all are saved. We still believe in being born again. Remember, we're going to go, there. let's just go there now. Soft music is taking us on a good journey. I'm I'm hearing some amens. Go to John chapter three. He's speaking to a Jew, John three, verse three. And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, I thought I had light. You have the light of your soul and your conscience, but it is not in the light of God yet united. The two fingers as the, the picture goes. Here is the light of mankind, that, that human soul reaching for God, and it can't touch it. Being born again means that God comes to you. You could never come to God, but God comes to you. And he brings you into the light of the world. He brings you into the all-encompassing divine. So as before you had a spark, as before you had, a, had a, a image that had been defiled, but now you're renewed. The image of God is made new. The light of God begins to shine. And what does the Bible say? It shines brighter and brighter and brighter to the full light of day. That's what it means to be born again. It means that spark, that that part of the flame that's been separated from God is now brought into the flame of God. It's like... A, T- taking a match and throwing it into the sun. You who which were burning in some ways, bright in some ways, conscious in some ways, are now put into the the glory of God. And so that is what it means to be born again. Now going to our notes, please. John chapter 6. We'll stay just a little bit longer up here. This might help, my brother. Thank you. Come on. Now it says all the Father, all those the Father gives me will come. And somebody talks to you and says well that means that only god chooses who goes to jesus and who doesn't you have to then say that contradicts everything i just learned doesn't all of life have the light of god doesn't god want everybody to be born again didn't he give jesus for the world john 3:16 so all that we've learned in verse 37 is that the Father brings people to Jesus. We didn't learn how he does that. Where did we learn how he did that? We learned about that in those other verses. As we read even in John chapter 1, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who received him, right? So this is not contradicting that. They try to make it out to be that. Thank you, my brother. I think we're good now. Let's give it up for Lawrence one more time. Amen. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. So anyone that the Father brings to Jesus, Jesus will never cast aside. And who specifically, now going back to this point, Who specifically is the Father bringing to Jesus? It's the righteous Jews. That's why when you clicked on that article, it said, it's not about you. Because the first context of John 6 and who the Father is bringing is not you and I 2,000 years later. It's the Jewish people who won't want him crucified. It's eventually the 120 in the upper room who have been faithful to Jesus. These are the ones the Father is bringing to Jesus in his earthly ministry. So Jesus is telling the people, the reason why you're not coming is because the Father's not bringing you. And the reason why the Father's not bringing you is because you haven't been following his words. Now look at verse 36, uh, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who has sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone, somebody say everyone, thank you, everyone who looks to the Son and does what? Believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. So is the Father reaching out to everyone? Yes, but is everyone Coming to the Father in faith. Is everyone doing what Abraham did? Believing? No. And because they don't believe, They're going to be cast into hell. And literally at this time, because the Jews have not been listening to the Father, they're not coming to the Son. Because they're trying to figure out, well, if you were so much with the God of Israel who we serve, then why wouldn't we believe you? And he's trying to tell them, this is why you don't believe me. It's because really, you're not following the Father. Really, you're not following Moses. If you were following the prophets, if you were listening to the Father, you'd be following me. Verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he say, I came down from heaven? So now they don't understand the incarnation. That Jesus came into the body at this time, but had preexisted that body. How many believe that? Jesus was born in the flesh at the time we celebrate Christmas, but he existed from the beginning. That's what John has been bringing you to. So now he says to them in verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves. He's rebuking them. And he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. But does that say the Father only uh, draws a few? No, it simply says that you can't come. No one can come unless the Father draws. We agree. I am not a Calvinist where I believe God uh, just makes his own decisions on who is saved and who goes to hell. I am not like that, but I agree with them that whoever gets saved was in a draw with the Father, was being drawn by the Father. But does that mean you can't resist the draw? No, you could still backslide from the draw. You could walk away from the draw. What it simply says is all those the Father is involved with, those who are believing Jesus, will always raise up. So the idea isn't trying to describe what happens to the damned or what happens to the backslider. What it's simply describing here is how someone can come to Jesus. You come because the Father draws. You come because he draws. Now, do you stay? That's another discussion that Jesus will describe in John 15. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Keep my words in you, and they will be in you. Uh, Keep my words in you, and you will bear much fruit. But if you do not remain in me, I will cut you off. So can the Father draw us and be brought to Jesus and then eventually cut off? Yes, Jesus talks about that later in the same book. And can people be drawn but resist the drawing and still go to hell. Absolutely. And I have multiple scriptures to show you of that, which, uh, yeah, let me show you. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter nine. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 30, and you'll see that God is continually drawing people, but they're resisting what he's wanting. So it's not an irresistible drawing, as the Calvinists would say. It's a resistible drawing. Look at Nehemiah. And let's go up to verse 29 to get more of the context, please. You guys are doing great in the back. Thank you. Going up to verse 29 is a little bit further. Thank you. Now, notice what's being said here. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant, talking about the Israelites. God has warned them. God has gone after them, Help them and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly. Somebody say stubbornly. Notice what they do here. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. Do you know what that word means in the Greek? It's originally in Hebrew, but then the Greek translators of the Septuagint put that into the Greek. You know what that is? Draw. You drawed them. You were patient with them. You were bringing them towards yourself. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. So whose fault was These Jewish people being punished, God's fault or their fault? Did God choose for them to be objects of wrath and not allow them to make a choice? Were they doomed from the womb based on God's own decision of fate? No, God wanted them to come. He warned them, but they turned their back. So going back to our notes, look at the notes. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. How many agree with that? But does that say that those who are drawn always come? No. Like with the Israelites, those who are drawn, those that God is patient with, can resist him. You might wonder why I spent so much time on this. Because a part of the doctrine of Calvinism is that those who are drawn must come. Those who are not drawn, cannot come. Listen to that again. Those who are drawn must come. In other words, those who will be saved must be saved. There's no way around it. Those who will be lost must be lost. There is no way around it. This is fated from the beginning. These are the questions that atheists ask us, do they not? Well, if God knew, I would go to hell. Why did you do that? You know. See, we put in there the answer, the defense, the theodicy, the defense of God and say, well, God gave us will. So God knows you may not choose him, but it still allowed you to be created. But he willed and he wanted you to choose him for your will to line up with his will. So ultimately, even though he knew, it was still your choice. Does everybody get that? The Calvinist will say, amen. And they'll just bite the bullet and say, that's right. God made you to be damned and go to hell. So if I go to hell, God made me, f- yes. And there's nothing I can do about it. Nope, you're going to hell. That's what a Calvinist will do. Many of them are honest, and sometimes you'll see them in debates with atheists, and you're like, oh, man, oh, Dios mio, help us, Lord. That's not how I would answer that. But that's what they do. They just bite the bullet. Those who are going to be saved will be saved in the discussion. Those who will be lost are going to be lost. And some, not all, but in history, have become un- unevangelizing because they believe whatever God will do, he'll do. And sometimes you'll meet people like this on the streets who have taken that extreme attitude. Well, if God wants me saved, well, then he'll save me. If God wants it, then he'll do it. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? They're talking like a fatalist. They're talking like a Calvinist. They're talking as if there's nothing on their part that's going to do anything, so why even try? What God will do, he'll do. That's not what the Bible is teaching. What the Bible is teaching is that the Father is drawing, but we have choice in the draw to resist or to come. How many know if I saw you at a wedding... And the dance floor is happening. It's hot. It's you know it's, it's really going down there. And I throw you out. Come on, come on. Yeah, my my guy Jason. I throw you out that fish line. I throw you out that fish line. And I start drawing you. How many know you have a choice to whether or not you come onto the dance floor? I could keep drawing you, and you not come. According to the Bible, He draws all of us. He's drawing your family. He's drawing your children. He's he's drawing the nations. He's drawing the world, but some are resisting. However, where we agree with the Calvinists, we agree with them in this, is that whoever we see with Jesus, we know the Father drew them because no one came to them, came to Jesus without the Father. We agree. Everybody who comes to Jesus must have been drawn. If you're there with Jesus, if I, how many Christians do I have in this place today? Then the Father drew you. There's no doubt about that. If you're here loving Jesus, it's because the Father drew you. But because someone out there is going to hell, do I now say to them, well, the Father didn't draw you. No, I say the opposite. The Father drew you, but you resisted. Does everybody get that? Going back, show them the scripture, please. And Nehemiah, just flip over there. You see, God warned them. God was patiently drawing them. God was calling out to them. But they stubbornly turned their backs on God, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. Listen to those three things humanity does on their way to hell. They stubbornly turn their backs on God. They become stiff-necked, and they refuse to listen. So those who go to hell are not going there doomed from the womb because God faded them from the very beginning. They're going there because they resisted stubbornly a draw. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Going back to the passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. How many? All All will be taught by God. How many have the light of mankind on the inside of them? All. How many is the Father drawing? All. How many does he love in the world? All. Everyone, he wishes to come to him. None to perish, right? So they all will be taught with God. No one who goes to hell, whether it's someone in a remote village or a culture, no one if they go to hell, we'll be able to say they were not taught by God. Everyone who goes to hell will go there based on their choice. No one on the day of judgment, because wouldn't this be the best argument to God if you were a Calvinist? The best, ju- the best thing to say on judgment is, well, you made me this way. I couldn't believe. Why are you sending me to hell then? Right? But no one on judgment day, the Bible says everyone's mouth will be shut, because everyone on judgment day will see how they were drawn by the Father. Even in Romans chapter 1, like to those who have not received gospel preaching, will have been drawn by the Father through nature. Not to worship nature, but to call out to the God who created nature. Romans chapter 17 talks about this. That even all uh, peoples who have not had the the gospel preached to them know to reach out to their creator. And if they reach out to that creator in the humility of, of what they know, You know, I didn't make all of this world. I'm not going to worship my ancestors. God will save them based on that knowledge because they have a light. Based on whatever light and revelation they have that is true, they believe, they will be saved. And when we go and give them the gospel, we give them more opportunities to be saved. Amen? They will all be taught by God. Now listen to the next part. Everyone who has heard the Father, and what's the next part? And learned from him comes to me. Please highlight that. Learned from him. Learn. Say it with me. Learned from him. See, it says it in the own context. So it's not that the Father has to force us all to come. No, the Father can draw us all, but it's those who humble themselves to learn that will come. It's their choice. Do they want to learn or not? Why did the nations become pagan? Whether it's in the European areas, the Romans, the Greeks... Or in the Middle East, the Phoenicians, the the Mesopotamians, or out there in China or in Latin America. Why did peoples become pagan? Because after the flood of Noah spreading out to the nations, they stopped learning from the Father, worshiping sticks and stones. All of our peoples did it. But anyone who would listen to the Father and humble themselves and learn would be drawn to Jesus. Jesus is still the Savior of the person that's in those tribes right now. It's just they don't know the gospel yet but they know the Father who's been teaching them. At this time, the Jews had never met Jesus. But if they had been listening to the Father, like Nicodemus, and learning from the Father, then they would be following Jesus as one of those disciples. That's what Jesus is teaching them. He's saying, if you really were down with the Father, if you were learning and studying the Scriptures, you wouldn't be arguing with me. You would be believing me. Verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one Who is from God, only he has seen the Father. And if you remember, I spoke about that before, that all those, even including Elijah, who were taken up in a chariot of fire, no one had gone into the presence of the Father yet. They were in a place called Abraham's bosom, waiting for Jesus to bring forth his sacrifice so that heaven could have a cleansing, so that that which was defiled by Satan could be given by the offering of Jesus, a cleansing, and they could be ushered into the presence of God. Otherwise, they would be destroyed. And so even at this point, Jesus is saying, no one has even looked upon the Father except me who has come from the Father. Verse 47, very truly I tell you, The one who believes has eternal life. Anything to do with bread and food and literal, no, nothing of that. But now he's going to go right back to how he's going to explain everything he just said about believing, about having eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Once again, leaving Calvinism, thank God. Back to Roman Catholicism, because it seems easier for us to get that. How many are happy for that transition? Thank you. He now says, anyone who eats this has eternal life. Did they start grabbing his arms, start eating his arms, start drinking his blood? No. Because they are starting to get what he's talking about. It's not that physical stuff. But they're still going to be confused and need some clarification. He says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the whole world. The bread is my what? My flesh. My bread... This bread is my what? Flesh. You better say Why are you all sleeping now in church? This bread is my what? Flesh. Now notice this. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the whole world. If Jesus gave that flesh on the cross, how are you eating it in communion? It's impossible. The physical body of Jesus can only be in one place and one time, and that body that was given... At the cross was a body that could be pierced, a body that could be slapped. Can you do that now to the glorified body? So you want to hear one of the errors of Roman Catholicism to get around this. They say we eat the glorified, resurrected body of Christ when it changes in its substance. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the flesh that he gives for the salvation is the flesh we eat. That's the flesh that can bleed. That's the flesh that can die. Are you listening to me? Can Jesus' resurrected body now die? No, it's resurrected. When you get a resurrected body, can your body die? But can this body die? Yes, when Jesus took on flesh, should he take on a body like yours or the resurrected body? Like this, that's what he says. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So how do they get around this? They try to say, well, Jesus gives us his glorified body. That's what happens in communion. Did the glorified body of Jesus die on the cross? No. No. The natural body of Jesus, the body that had to eat, drink, go to the bathroom, that is what died on the cross. So how could we be having that in communion? It is impossible. As I said, their only way around it is to say, what's this glorified body? Of course we know we can't eat the literal body that Jesus literally had. So when it literally turns into a body, it's the literal glorified body. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, my glorified body is what you get. No, he says, this body is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. A few of you are getting it. Just one more time. Everybody understand this. If they're going to say, I know, this, i got to take my time, sister. Please be patient with those who don't get it. If the Catholic says to you, this is the body of Christ, and you go, how in the world did the body of Christ get here? Right? Like, he's going to worship it. I have articles here you can click on that literally say they worship it. They worship the communion. That's not made up. That's out of their own words. Just scroll up a little bit, please. Uh, No matter of fact, go down. Go down a little bit. Go down. I'll show it Says where it says they worship it, and they glorify it. Right here, for my flesh. Hit on the link for my flesh, please. Verse 55. I wanted you not only to take my word, but I wanted you to see the Roman Catholic site as well. Okay? This is not my word. It's their word. Now, everybody see this right here. Oh, this is uh, another one. Go back. Let's go back here. I hope I kept it in there. Hit uh, real food here. Real food which I I can't wait to get into this. Let's click on that. I believe I gave you a Roman Catholic site. Yes. Okay, does everybody see this, the Catholic thing? Does it say the Protestant thing? No, it says the Catholic thing, right? Okay, now this is them trying to answer the claim that they're not cannibalists. Okay? Now, just follow my hand. I'm going to pretend I'm there with you guys. Just follow my hand here, okay? Okay, right here. Okay, now watch. The Eucharist is life. Uh, Yeah, We're not subscribing to that. The the Eucharist is life. Watch this. The Eucharist is life. Cannibals eat what is dead. The Aztecs, the most notorious cannibalistic society in history, ate the beating hearts of victims, but they were still eating something doomed to die. In the act of eating it, it died. By contrast, Christ is alive. He rose on the third day and is present in the Eucharist. See, the resurrected Christ who is alive is present where? Where? In the Eucharist, is this my word or the Catholic's word? Catholic's word, as fully alive. So you're eating a fully alive Jesus. This is what it says. Indeed, he is life itself. Our reception of the Eucharist doesn't destroy or change that in any way. The Eucharist is the whole body and blood of Jesus Christ. Cannibals only take a part of their victims, but even the smallest particle of the Eucharist contains the entire body and blood of Christ. Am I making this up? Not at all. This is what they go. Now, go go up a little bit more, please. Go up right here. Not only do we eat the body and blood of Jesus, we eat his soul. The Eucharist contains the soul of Jesus Christ. Some cannibalistic societies eat the flesh. It's almost like they're saying, hey, you want to be a cannibalist? Don't be like these kind of cannibalists. Be like this kind of can-. It's like he's owning their cannibalists, but they're a better kind of cannibalist. Like, we're a better kind of cannibalist. Some cannibalistic societies eat the flesh or drink the blood of the fallen warriors in the hopes of taking on their life force or their courage. So this pagan idea that I can eat the heart and get the soul of the warrior, they're now going to apply to Jesus or of destroying their spirit altogether. Yet precisely because the risen Jesus is alive, his immortal soul is united to his body and blood, and it is inseparable from them in the Eucharist. Not only do you eat the soul of Jesus, the Eucharist contains the divinity of Jesus. You're eating the divine. Because Jesus Christ is true God and true man, his divinity and humanity are also inseparable, consequently in partaking of the human aspects of Christ, his body, blood, and soul. see so you're taking part of his body, his blood, and his soul. We also partake of his divine nature. This stands in sharp contrast to cannibalism, As the the binder wars of Central Asia, whose flesh-eating religious rituals tried to bring them closer to the gods, but made them sink lower than most beasts. Putting all all of these elements together, we arrive at the Catholic formula. The Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that nonsense? Now go back to our notes in the Bible, please. Thank God for the Bible. How many are happy you came to hear the Bible today? Not just a Catholic thing. How many are glad we take time to do this? Now go back up to where I was, please, around verse 44. Let's go down a little bit, say, to verse 49, rather. 51. Here we go. Highlight verse 51, please. Lawrence, would you come, please, in closing? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Are we looking at him in this story right now turning into literal bread? No. He's a person saying, I'm the bread. Are they going to start eating him? Of course not. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my what? My flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. They say that we're going to eat his soul. Doesn't say it there. They say we're going to eat his divinity. Doesn't say it there. They think we're going to literally eat his body. It does not say it there. It says, this bread is my flesh. What is the flesh of Jesus? the literal body that will die. When he raises, he raises glorified. Have you partaken of the crucified Jesus? You should have when you got saved. It can't be his glorified immortal soul because that's not what died. What was whipped and beaten was his flesh. So when we say we're covered by the blood, Do we literally mean there's blood on the inside of us? No, we mean spiritually that the blood of Jesus covers us. When we say that his flesh was given for us and we have partaken of it, does that mean we've eaten something physically with our teeth and swallowed it into our belly? No. When we accept Christ and his flesh being sacrificed, we are saved. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And now come back next week, I'll explain it even more further. It's very clear that he is not talking about giving them communion. He is not talking about them literally eating his soul. It's them learning that the cross, the place where Jesus shed his blood, the place where he is nailed, is where they will be saved. And if they receive that, if they bring that inside their heart like they would food, if they bring that inside their heart like they would food, they would be saved. When a Christian, or or rather when a sinner says, I want to become a Christian, what do they have to do? They have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't mean they start eating Jesus. That's ridiculous. What they are saying is, I believe in Jesus. I believe his flesh was crucified for me. And I pray today that this encourages you because Jesus' example of eating and drinking is not to now make us put some food up here. The idea is he's this close to you. Just like when you partake of food, it goes inside of you. It becomes a part of you. The nutrients soak into your bloodstream it becomes a part of your energy and your life force Jesus is teaching us that what he did on the cross is the food for our souls don't miss it otherwise you're going to be offended the same way the Jews are the Jews are like totally missing this and the Catholics would like come up and just own it they would be like of course we're going to eat Jesus get over it we're the true cannibals and like Jesus, like what are you doing I don't need your help He's going to say in just a moment, he's going to say, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And that's why we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is the living word. I'm getting to that by God's grace. But as we've gone this far. Do you partake of the bread of Jesus' flesh? Do you remember the crucifixion? Do you take in the blood of forgiveness as you confess your sins? Are you today grateful for what he's done? Are you having a relationship today with him because of his sacrifice? If you are, your life will never be the same again. Your spiritual vitality will be made strong. Amen.